Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When you're truly unmistakable, the competition becomes completely irrelevant. You're not the best option. You're the only option. When you're the only option, people don't price shop, compare, or wait for what you're selling to go on sale. If you're the only option, people will wait in line to buy your product or work with you regardless of what it costs, or in some cases, regardless of what you're selling. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Unmistakable Creative Podcast being recorded live in Portland, Oregon. I am your host. I am your temporary host. My name's Matt Monroe. And for the next 45 minutes, we are going to shift gears. We are going to crank the mics and the speakers up to 11. And more importantly, we're going to take Srini Rao, the real host of this show, and put him in the hot seat. Ladies and gentlemen, Srini Rao. Srini, I have been wanting to say this for the longest time. Welcome to the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. <laughs> it is really, really weird because I don't think anybody's done this for five years. Somebody else did it once before, but this was a long time ago. And it wasn't even the Unmistakable Creative no, Podcast back then. No. So you have a brand new book out. Yeah. In fact, uh, first of all, everyone should get it. It is called Why Only is Better Than Best, Unmistakable. And um, I really want to spend a good amount of time talking about the book, why you wrote it, how you wrote it, what the inspirations for the book were, but I also want to dig into your past just a little bit because I think by going into a person's past, you find out what their present, I was about to say present condition is, their present situation is, why they're doing what they're doing, and uh, we'll then end up talking a little bit about the future where you see media going. For right now though, if you would, give me three adjectives that describe your childhood. Sure. I think the first one is nomadic. Uh, the second one I would say sporadic, and the third one I would say is strict. Nomadic, yeah. sporadic, and strict. Okay, could you give me an example of nomadic? Yeah, I mean, I grew up kind of traveling all over the world. My dad is a college professor, um, but you know, my dad was building his career mostly while I was growing up. So my sister and I have had these very radically different upbringings because she got to see what it was like to grow up in the same town for 20 years and have the same friends that she's had since fifth grade where you know she's attended all of their weddings, like all that stuff. And I don't have any friends that I've known any longer than 20 years. Uh, mainly because we moved so much when I was a kid. And what's interesting is a lot of those people have started showing up again in my life as a byproduct of the internet and as a byproduct of the unmistakable creative, like friends from college, friends from when I was a kid. So it's, it's really bizarre to have these connections happen 30 plus years later. Um, probably one of, the, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me in terms of seeing somebody almost 20 years after um, I actually met them. I was walking through Tamarindo, Costa Rica. This was a point when I was living there, and I was wearing a Texas A&M t-shirt. And uh, the woman who ran the youth hostel happened to be walking around that night, and she was walking with these two guys, and they saw the shirt. They're like, where did you get that shirt? And I was like, well, I lived in College Station for seven years. They're like, we're from College Station. 
And you know, so I was like, we got to talking, and it turned out the guy was a kid that I was in sixth grade with. <laughs> and somehow, we had never you know, had a class together, but we knew of each other, and he didn't believe me. I was like, I can tell you who all your best friends were in sixth grade, if you don't believe me. And I knew it, and he was just stunned. I mean, he couldn't believe. And so it was really funny that, you know, of all places in Tamarindo, you meet this person from your past who you never actually met, but you only knew of, like peripherally. Like we, somehow we never were in the same class, but we had tons of friends in common. Uh, so, you know, we started moving. I mean, like, so my dad did his PhD in Australia. We spent four years in Canada, um, in Edmonton, which is why I hate cold weather with a passion um, and will never live anywhere where it snows. Uh, and besides, brown people in cold weather are an unnatural combo, which doesn't explain New Jersey, but that's a whole other story. Um, so then we moved to Texas. Not that there are a lot of brown people in Texas, but, uh, you know. I think just yeah. Yeah, maybe. So Texas, you know, my dad did postdoctoral work there for seven years, and then he got a job as a professor at uh, the University of California, Riverside, when I was a sophomore in high school. So, I mean, I spent my whole life moving and constantly making new friends. So, you know, when I look back at it, I mean, if you, could, if you tie it to the work that I'm doing now, it's not a coincidence that I've built a platform that never, you know, the possibility of meeting people is never ending. Do you think, um, do you think culture shock was part of your life? I mean, you're going... Australia to Canada, which probably there's not much difference. No. But then you're going Canada. Canada to Texas was a big one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because in Canada, we had this very vibrant uh, Indian community. You know, my parents had hundreds of friends. I mean, I can't think of one week, maybe I can think of two weekends in four years where my parents didn't have some party to go to that, you know, you grew up with these kids. Every weekend, we would go to somebody's house and, you know, our parents would basically bundle us up and, you know, they'd tell us, get ready, we're leaving in 15 minutes and you're sitting there like, you know, in layers and layers of clothing. You're like, I have to go to the bathroom. They're like, don't worry, we're leaving in 15 minutes. Like you said that 15 minutes ago. Uh, so, you know, we, so Canada was not really culture shock, but Texas absolutely was a big change to go from a big city like Edmonton, Alberta to a small Texas town like College Station uh, was, was very disorienting. My parents for the first year were bored out of their minds. They just hated it because the one and only friend that they had ended up moving to India like months after we got there. And it was just, it was really weird to be at this place where we didn't have stuff to go, go to on the weekends. We didn't have this community. And, you know, you go from a place where you're surrounded by Indian people to a place where you're one of the only ones. Okay. Uh, so I don't want to dig too much, yeah. but, but how, how do you think that affected you? Well, I mean, if you look at, you know, my, uh, you know, I guess if you, if you look at my friendships, we could probably all get together and record a commercial for the United Colors of Benetton. You know, maybe that's how it affected me because my friendships are all very diverse. Like, it's like I said, I mean, I think the weirdest thing about having an internet presence is seeing all these people from different parts of your past connect to this one thing that you do. Okay. Amateur psychologist time. <laughs> yeah. Amateur psychologist time. So we've covered nomadic yeah. and a bit of sporadic. What about strict? Strict, I mean, Indian parents, right? You know, I mean, they, they had certain expectations. Like, I mean, we didn't get our report cards put on the refrigerator for getting straight A's. It was like, that's what's expected of you. Like, why would we give you, you know, I, I mean, we would come home from school and, and, you know, we'd learn something from some American kid taught us and we'd try to pull it on our parents. It's like, hey, one of my friends is getting $5 for every A that he gets. My dad's like, you're getting fed a meal three times a day. I think we're, we're good here, you know? Um, there's, this, there's actually this really great uh, stand-up comedy bit with this guy, Russell Peters, where he talks about this kid who is really talking back to his mom, you know, and it's an American kid, and he goes home and he tries it with his mom. 
And you know, needless to say, the consequences were not great. I learned that lesson, and that's why it's so funny to every Indian kid, because every one of, one of us has learned that lesson. We're like, wow. And he goes to school. He says, dude, I tried what you said with your mom. And he's like, I got the shit beat out of me because of that. So not that I ever got the hell beat out of me, but you know, they were strict. I mean, they, they had certain expectations for you know, what, was ex you know, what we were supposed to do. I mean, like we were good students. That was a given. Um, and we were always encouraged to do certain things, like, like a very sort of narrow set of things. You know, I mean, I, I must have been told a number of times growing up, if you want a good life, become a doctor. Sure, become a doctor or become an engineer. Which, you know, maybe my sister heard it because she did. Right, right. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing to me. Your book, yeah. Unmistakable, Why Only is Better... I'm so, I messed that up. Why Only is Better Than Best. I mean, this is a book about bucking the system, about yeah. not following the rules, about breaking the rules, about, yeah, woohoo, woohoo, everybody. Yeah. All right. But no, really, this is a book about breaking the rules, but you grew up told you will do this, you will follow this path. Right. What made you break away? The results, they were abysmal. I mean, so most people, I think, end up, you know, in situations where, okay, if they're told what to do, they might be unhappy, but they're comfortable at least, right? And the results are pretty average. It's like, okay, I don't love this job, but, you know, I'm at least making a paycheck and, you know, doing relatively well. I'm, you know, a valuable member to society, whatever the hell that means. But um, my results were just abysmal. They were terrible. I mean, I got fired from every real job I've ever been at. Uh, so you're kind of like, at a certain point, you're like, okay, this is idiotic. Only a fool would not begin to question this. You know, I was like, I don't want to live this way the rest of my life. Every one of my friends. The other thing is, I've, I've been surrounded by high achieving people my entire life. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I went to Berkeley as an undergrad. I mean, the dumbest of my friends in high school went to Berkeley. Um, and then my Berkeley friends, every one of them either went to Harvard, Stanford, or Wharton for business school, or they became doctors and lawyers. So, you know, they're like total overachievers. And I'm kind of like, how is this not working? I've like followed this formula that supposedly is the prescription for a good life, and it doesn't work. I'm like, then it has to be called into question at some point. So you know, for some people, yeah, maybe it works. But I mean, for me, I think the greatest gift to come from all of that was that the results were so bad. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm going to backtrack just a bit. Sure. All your friends are high achieving, but are they all happy? That I can't tell you because I'm not as close to as a lot of them as I used to be. Okay. Um, you know, many of them are, but uh, are they happier actually, or, or you know, are they comfortable? I think I would say a lot of them are comfortable. You know, I, I actually saw a friend recently, and you know, he's pretty much achieved everything you would think you'd want in your life. You know, at the age of 30, he has a kid. I mean, and they have a nice house uh, in Redondo Beach. And I watched a Saturday, and, and we had a lengthy chat. He said, you know, he's like, I've been feeling down, and I kind of spend a Saturday with him. I was like, wow. I'm like, no wonder you're feeling down. Your Saturday is like just routines. Like there's no, there's no sense of greater meaning or purpose. There's nothing that adds meaning to his life beyond his work and his family. And I think that's critically important to have something that does, you know, I mean, for me, that thing has been surfing. And like, so I, I looked at it and I was like, okay, that made all the sense in the world to me. I was like, I would be down if that was my routine every day. He's become so domesticated that at a certain point, you're like, okay, if you're living like this, you're living Groundhog Day, and you know, of course you're going to feel that way, in my mind. You mentioned surfing. Yeah. It's a huge theme within the book. Sure. How was surfing a pivotal moment for you? Learning to surf and actually getting on top of a wave? Or so, a wave? I, I think, you know, the, it all comes down to this one moment. Uh, I was finishing a semester in Brazil 
where uh, I'd you know, done a study abroad and all my friends went home early because uh, they ran out of money. And we were all supposed to be together for New Year's Eve and I was like, great. So I was stuck with this guy and we had nothing in common. But he liked to surf and I was kind of tired of sitting on the beach drinking. And so it was like, the la it was two days before I came home, I was like, all right, you know what? I'm gonna try and just give it one more shot. And you know, I'd probably tried about five or 10 times before then, I just never could get up, you know, even taking lessons. I mean, the, the first time I took a surf lesson, the guy in San Diego, the instructor said, it's a really good thing you took a lesson, otherwise you would have hurt yourself. Um, you know, he probably figured I was a lost cause. I mean, you know, I have no natural athletic ability, so it's probably, it's not your first choice, you know, uh, of sports. But, uh, you know, I, for some reason that day in Brazil, it just clicked. And there's two things that happened. So there's another thing that, that's worth mentioning. I had like really bad um, digestive problems. I got an IBS for years that was the byproduct of a really stressful job that I started my freshman year, or right after my senior year in college. And for the first time in my life, that really just sort of a heavy feeling, you know, for the first time since, you know, I was in college, that heavy feeling was gone right after I got out of the water. And I was kind of like, oh my God, I think I found the cure. And you know, I was like, well, this is convenient. I happened to be going to graduate school in Malibu. And so when I got my financial aid check, I didn't go to the bookstore, I went to the surf shop. And I bought a wetsuit and a board and uh, the rest is kind of history. I mean, that summer ended up being really the pivotal one because I didn't have a job. And so I surfed for six hours a day for eight months straight. I'm actually gonna have you read a passage from your book. Okay. Because it's exactly in line with what you've been talking about. Yeah. So I'd like to read, have you read what's okay. underlined there. When I stood up on a wave, every ounce of fear, anxiety, depression, and self-doubt didn't just dissipate, it vanished. Even though I was jobless, surviving primarily on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and sleeping on the living room floor of an apartment that was once mine, for the first time in my adult life, I experienced unparalleled joy. That's fantastic. <laughs> so surfing was a pivotal moment, and at the same time you're realizing you're on a career path. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got an MBA. Yeah. You know, you're following the rules and it's not providing satisfaction. What did you do next? Well, it's not that it wasn't just providing satisfaction. It wasn't working. You know? Well, okay, so the economy sucked too. Yeah, I mean, um, so right after I graduated, uh, I needed something to keep my, you know, my mind occupied and I got a, a really good piece of advice from somebody. He said, the worst thing you can do when you're unemployed is to spend all your time looking for a job which seems really counterintuitive. But the thing is that if you spend all day, you know, doing this one thing that constantly reinforces the worst thing in your life, then of course you're gonna feel terrible. So it was good advice and I was kinda like, okay, you know what, I can limit the job search to an hour a day. And so the other thing I did was I started a blog and I started surfing. So the blog was kind of, you know, uh, the reason I started it, which is really kind of ironic if you, if you actually look at the very, the motivation for starting it was I was applying for jobs um, for, in social media positions. I was like, okay, I need some, you know, tangible evidence of my skills because my resume doesn't really indicate that. And so that was the reason. And, you know, of course that ship sailed really far off course because, you know, me and a job are clearly not meant to be. World's worst employee? Yeah, probably. Me too. One of the worst. Boom. <laughs> Sorry, had to do that. <laughs> so, all right, you started a blog. What came after that? So after the blog, um, there was a, a weekend sometime, I think, in late July or, or like, um, yeah, sometime late, like mid or late July, where I went to LA at this apartment that a friend of mine had agreed to rent. He said, look, he's like, if I don't have to pay the deposit, you can come and sleep uh, here anytime you want. And I still had a lease that hadn't run out yet. So I was like, yeah, that's fine. 
Uh, so this is the living room floor that I was speaking of. And so I would go there because, you know, there's no jobs. You know, I had to move home um, right after graduate school. But I would go to L.A. because there were networking events going on and, you know, job interviews primarily were in L.A. because that's where I was looking. And somehow I had this Wednesday through Sunday period where all the job interviews for some reason got rescheduled or canceled. And I was like, well, okay, there's nothing else to do. I'm not going to sit here all day. So I surfed every day for five days straight from like seven in the morning to like six in the evening. And that was kind of the end of it. From there, it was like, okay, I guess me and a normal job are never meant to be. And, you know, even when I went into interviews, I was like, you guys need to know this. Um, this is a priority. I will be a much better employee. And if you guys have a problem with this, we're done. Like, I, so I, you know, I started scheduling all my phone interviews from the beach. Um, you know, like I, I built the entire schedule, you know, around surfing. I was kind of like, no, I can't. They would say, can you come in at nine in the morning? I would say, no. And they'd say, why? I'm like, I have other plans. Uh, you know, and I did. Really I did. important appointments. I did. I, and, you know, I remember one day I got out of the water and the guy was like, what's that in the background? I'm like, it's the ocean. I'm like, you know, but you want to have a phone interview, right? He's like, you're at the beach? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, why wouldn't I do a phone interview from the beach? So, uh, I mean, and that, you know, that just, at, at that point, it started to take over my life. I mean, I was kind of like, but the thing is that it was this thing that made this job search, this thing that was really troubling, not seem so bad. You know, it was kind of like, wow, this isn't that big a deal right now. Like, it, it honestly got me through it. And, you know, I, part of what I think I discovered in that process was that this was this very therapeutic healing thing that, um, it turned out that everybody who surfed had this thing in common. You know, I remember very distinctly, and I wrote about this in the book, I talked to this old guy on the beach. I was, you know, you're rinsing off at the showers at the beach in Santa Monica, and, you know, we we're both talking, and, you know, and if you have a big blue foam surfboard, everybody knows that you're basically a beginner. Right. And um, it's a sign that you're in. Training idiot. wheels. You, they are training wheels. Like, people, advanced surfers stay away from them because they're like, okay, you're an idiot if you're carrying one of those. And, you know, I mean, I was getting actually quite good because I was spending so much time in the water. And so we got to talking and he told me that, you know, it was surfing that had gotten him through a divorce and the death of his mother. I was like, okay, wait a minute. I mean, if that's, clearly there's something very special here. Um, and, you know, I mean, this, this thing became sort of the, you know, and I remember there was a point at which somebody said, one of my friends said, somebody told me that they thought surfing was ruining your life, which is amusing since, you know, my entire career has been transformed by it. So I think really what it comes down to, you know, I said this the other, uh, like in something that I was writing the other day, you know, so Joseph Campbell said once follow your bliss, right? But your bliss and your calling don't necessarily have to be one and the same. So like my bliss is surfing. It's not my calling. I'm not going to be right. a professional surfer. You're not Laird Hamilton. No, <laughs> and I never will be for good reason. Right. Very good. Let's jump ahead. Let's okay. talk about the podcast for just sure. a little bit, its origins, and then we'll go straight into the book. Okay. So tell me the story of Unmistakable Creative and actually all its, its precursor. So how it started really um, was I was in this online course, and one of the lessons was interview somebody as a way to get traffic to your blog. And if there's anything that this experience taught me, and this is one thing I would pass on to people listening, is you should never follow anybody's instructions to the letter, especially if you're taking an online course, because if you leave those instructions open to interpretation, you're going to end up with a lot more interesting outcomes. So the lesson was do one interview as a way to get traffic, because every week you'd get a lesson in your inbox, and your job was to complete that lesson. And since I didn't have an actual job every week, that was my work. I basically would write on this blog, I would apply for jobs, and I would surf. And so one, I think it was probably like week 11, the lesson was interview somebody. So I went on the online forum and I said, hey, I'm trying to complete lesson number 11 because um, you know these courses often have forums where all the people who are enrolled in the course are that. And this guy named Josh Hanagarney, um, who uh, is a librarian with Tourette's, 
uh, who runs you know a, a blog at, called the World's Strongest Librarian because he's like a kettlebell weightlifter. Uh, F bomb Tourette's or yeah, I, I don't know. It's not that bad. I mean, enough, okay. it, clearly he got through an interview with me, so there weren't that many F bombs. But okay. uh, it was really really interesting, and so uh, he ended up being the very first interview that I ever did, and he said to me, "Don't underestimate what this is going to do for you." And what's really interesting is when I walked into my literary agent's office for the first time in New York, the first book I saw on her shelf was his book. I was like, you won't believe this, but that is the first person I ever interviewed. Do you, uh, do you believe in serendipity? A little bit, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not into New Age bullshit, you know that. But, I know that, yeah. You know, which is what I constantly refer to it as, as yeah, even yeah. though I'm sure there are people in our audience who are. <laughs> you know. Okay. There are. I mean, let's yeah, be yeah, honest. Yeah. But, you know, and everybody knows that I make fun of crystals and candles and and life coaches you, and yeah, 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 all that. All right. Um, how did you begin? Okay, so you started off writing with the blog, but how did blog? How did blogging turn into book publishing? Well, so I think we have to go back to podcasting before we okay. go from blogging to book okay. publishing. So. You know, what started as one interview eventually became a weekly series because Josh referred me to one person and that person referred me to another. And somehow, eventually, I landed on a guy named Sid Savara who actually didn't think very much of my writing. Uh, so he, he actually thought I was a pretty lousy writer. In fact, to this day, he's still, like, I remember even he co-founded the podcast with me and he would never let me guest post on his blog. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, because he was like, he's like, your, your writing is not good enough. Which where, is, where is he now? He's in Hawaii and we're, we're still good friends. I mean, okay. he's... So, um, but he, you know, I, I wrote him a letter saying, hey, I'm starting this multi-author blog and I'm wondering if you're interested in contributing to it. And he said, no. And then he wrote me this lengthy email about, which is in the book. Mm. And he wrote me this really long email about how he liked the interviews that I was doing. But he said that, you know, it would be much more successful if I spun it out into a separate site. And so I just replied back and said, great, when do you want to get started? I don't think that's what he was expecting. So. I think within a day, I sent him like three versions of mock-ups. I didn't know how to design. So I was like, hey, what do you think? Is this what you had in mind? He was like, oh. He's like, you were serious. I'm like, well, you said you want to start it, so I need some help. So mm -hmm. I dragged him along for the first year, and then he bowed out You know, halfway through. He's kind of like, yeah, he's like, there's not enough short-term upside, which was fine. We parted on good terms. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he was, it, you know, he co-founded the podcast with me and, um, you know, because he knew a lot of stuff about online marketing and like running, you know, email lists and all the stuff that I just didn't know or had no interest in because right. uh, I knew what I was good at was creating. So we did, you know, a hundred plus interviews and I think somewhere along the way, like, and I mean, of course, you're interviewing lots of authors. So naturally you're, especially in the beginning, we're interviewing lots of bloggers. So all of them were writers. So naturally, at some point, you start to inherit some of that inevitably, um, and so you start becoming curious. And you know, like I'd read numerous stories of people who had gone from starting a blog to a book deal. I mean, of course, I told all those stories. That was the bulk of what the podcast was: is finding people like this. And so, you know, I, I think there was a through line throughout this entire process of publishing and making things. That mm -hmm. was really what I loved doing. Mm -hmm. And you know, where did we go to, to publishing books? I think you know, really, we have to fast forward to 2013. Because okay. um, I wrote a lot of guest posts on other blogs. I wrote a lot of articles. I was always a prolific writer. But the thing is, like, I never quite got you know, serious momentum or liftoff. And uh, I started contributing to this blog called Grow that was run by a guy named Mark Schaefer. And in 2013, I, I emailed him. I said, hey, Mark. You know, I know that I'm no longer writing for Grow, but I really would love to um, self-publish a book, and I'm wondering if I could take the content that I've produced for Grow and compile it into a book. 
uh, and he actually said, yeah, that's fine. And he had paid me for the content, so it was even nicer, really nice of him to do that because he didn't have to. He owned it. And he said, yeah, I think it'll be good for you. And that book ended up being called The Small Army Strategy. Um, and for some reason, it just struck a chord. It sold you know, a thousand copies, and most traditionally published books don't sell a thousand copies. So when that happened, I kind of, you know, um, then I think the next sort of significant inflection point was that I realized that I really probably had no shot of ever getting hired anywhere, or at least I thought I did. Now I probably have a much greater shot at getting hired if Ironic. I wanted to, as weird as that is. Um, Would you actually do that? Would you I actually know. sit in an office I, somewhere? I, I applied for a job at IDEO um, a while back because I saw the job description. I was like, this looks like it would be fun. So it really would depend. I mean, if it was the kind of environment that would allow me to continue doing this kind of stuff, then yeah. I mean, that job, I was like, it's IDEO. I mean, it seemed like an amazing job. I was like, yeah. I mean, it, it would have to be an opportunity that okay. would blow my mind. Okay. Granted, you know, the, the, you know, if I had to sacrifice the surfing, the answer would be no. Okay. So uh, Let's go back. Uh, we were talking about small, small army strategy. Yeah. That's how your writing career got started. Yeah. And how did it transition from there? Well, so, you know, we reached this point where, you know, you realize, okay, well, I'm not going to uh, probably have a job, you know, because one thing that, that people don't know is I was interviewing for jobs, actually, between 2011 and 2013, uh, and I, I don't know that I've ever talked about this I publicly. Didn't know that. Yeah, so I was looking, you know, because much of the dismay of my parents, like, Unmistakable Creative wasn't quite what it is now. It didn't seem like there really was a career to be made out of this. So. I was stuck in this perpetual catch-22, though, because every time I went in for an interview, the very thing that would get me in the door, which was the body of work I'd built, would be the very reason nobody wanted to hire me. They would say, you know, this doesn't look like some side project. It looks like you're going to leave the second you don't need us. I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, you know, at that point, I was kind of like, all right, if that's true, I wonder what would happen if I started to write in this very sort of radically, you know, honest and transparent way. And so that you know, eventually became this crazy series of fat Facebook status updates, um, which I know you've read um, because we've been Facebook friends for a long time and a lot of people listening probably have read. Mm -hmm. uh, and after about six months of what I jokingly refer to as committing career suicide, one Facebook status update at a time, I compiled all of that into a book, um, had Mars Dorian design a cover, uploaded it to Amazon and called it The Art of Being Unmistakable. And that, I think, was really kind of the seed. That planted the seed for eventually what would happen. Um, you know, we, you know, we can get into the media circus that erupted from that. Actually, I want to because that was a pivotal moment, and so much of your book talks about pivotal moments. So explain yeah. the pivot that took place with the art of being unmistakable. So uh, to explain the pivot that took place with the art of being unmistakable, I think we also have to talk about two other things that took place. One is the presence of Greg Hartle in my life, okay. um, because it, it would be really kind of weird not to mention him in this conversation, given the role that he played. Um, and then the other is AJ Leon. So around the same time, um, probably around May of 2013, uh, I you know, was introduced to AJ and he asked me to come and speak at a conference in Fargo. And at the same time, for some unexplainable reason, Greg had contacted me a few months ago and said, hey, I want to finish up this project that I'm doing and I want you to help me write a book. I'm like, I'm like well, why would you ask me? I'm like, there's lots of published authors. And so, you know, we got to talking and once a week we would check in and, and I would, um, you know, the first maybe two weeks I gave him advice and the rest of the, the time it was me asking him for advice and eventually uh, we were in Fargo and he said, I want you to come and, and join a company that we're uh, working on as the marketing director. And I was like, Greg, I've been fired from every job I've been at. That's a really bad idea. <laughs> and so he said, it's not a job. He said, you want to hold equity in startups. You'll be an equity holder. And he said, and if you don't come and do it, we're going to ask you to find the person for us. 
I was like, well, I don't want to have to find your employee for you, so I'll do it. And I said, but in exchange, I want you to mentor me to get this business to the next level, which you know he did. You know, and you know, as Greg jokingly says, the worst thing to ever do is to try to hire me because you will do more work for me than I will for you, um, which anybody can attest to. We could do an entire podcast about Greg Hartle. Yeah, we really could. Yeah. Um, so Greg ended up playing this very pivotal role in, in really kind of teaching me how to run things as a business. And uh, then Art of Being Unmistakable came along. And, and one of Greg's, probably Greg's biggest contribution was the name Unmistakable Creative. Like he had the foresight to see that we had a body of work that didn't have a brand identity or an ethos. And he knew it needed that. And I knew I wanted it. I just wasn't sure what it was. And I think you know, the, the biggest thing that Art of Being Unmistakable did is it revealed that uh, to us, what that sort of ethos was. Okay. So you had a mentor coach with Greg. What happened next? So the Art of Being Unmistakable ended up through a series of freakish coincidences in the hands of Glenn Beck. Uh, so, you know, I didn't know anything about Glenn Beck at the time. I was kind of like, oh, better go look up this Glenn Beck guy. Because I tweeted saying, oh, my book is number one in the entrepreneurship category. And somebody tweeted back saying, you might want to thank Glenn Beck. He raved about your book on his show today. I was like, okay. And I, you know, I, I didn't know anything about him. So I, I did a few Google searches. I was like, wow, this guy is really not well liked. And I, I remember, you know, <laughs> looking through my Facebook feed the moment I posted up, like all these comments. I was like, this is really weird. And then I think a day later, I get an email from Glenn personally saying, you know, I love this book. Uh, you know, I'd really like to meet you and have you come and talk. I have an audience that needs to hear this message. And so a week later, I found myself in Dallas um, talking to, to Glenn Beck. And, you know, the book ended up selling, I think, 15,000 copies. And it was like the number eight book on all of Amazon uh, the day after. And so suddenly, like overnight, it appeared that you know we kind of had this overnight success, and you know we got a lot of cash all at once, which honestly was poured into building the unmistakable brand. Mm -hmm. And so after that, you know, you know this well because you were part of it. Um, we planned a live event called the Instigator Experience with sixty speakers and nine attendees, which I always jokingly call the wedding with no wife at the end of it. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, and uh, that ended up selling out in two weeks. Uh, then right after that, we launched the Unmistakable Creative Brand. You know, and, and so then that takes us into 2014. If you want to do a deep dive into 2014, I'll let you ask the questions. Um, and I kind of don't, but. I'm going to hold off on that. I actually want to jump ahead. Good. I mean, we could do a podcast about Art of, art of Being Unmistakable. Yeah. We could do a podcast about Greg Hartle. Sure. You've got a new book coming out. Yeah. Unmistakable, Why Only is Better than best. Why did you write it? So, well, first, I guess it's important to talk about where it came, you know, how it came yeah. about. Um, I, I had this piece on a website called medium.com titled How Writing a Thousand Words a Day Changed My Life because I've always abided by this habit of writing a thousand words a day for probably the better part of the last five years. Um, mainly because there was a, when I started working with Greg, there was all these demands on my content production because I was also doing freelance writing. They wanted me to write articles for their company. And I realized, I was like, well, I'm not skilled enough to be able to pull off this much content on a daily basis. I, the only way I'm going to deal with this is through just sheer volume. And so through that process, I ended up realizing, wow, this is one of the best possible things I could have done for myself as a writer. And so I became a much better writer. So fast forward to two years, you know, 2015, um, an editor at Penguin finds this article and uh, sends me an email saying, hey, you know, I love everything that you are up to and I'd like to talk about a book. So we went back and forth on a lot of different ideas. This wasn't the first idea that we talked about and we couldn't agree on anything. And the funny thing is they made an offer before we even knew what the book was going to be. 
And so basically we thought, okay, you're going to revise and expand the art of being unmistakable and go deeper. And So in, part two, basically. It really or that's isn't. What they, that's what they were That's expecting. what we were thinking is that this would be part two. Um, if, you know, if I were to explain it this way, I'd say, you know, the first book is the seed, this book is the fruit. And, um, you know, I don't think the first book really, it didn't, you know, go as deep as this does into the entire idea of unmistakable because, you know, when that first book came out, we weren't even called the unmistakable creative, you know, like the truth is that the entire sort of ethos of unmistakable, you know, is much more developed now than it ever was when that book came out. And so, you know, now we've had what probably three, 400 interviews under the new brand. And, you know, and the thing is the perspective changed drastically because we brought in a much wider mm -hmm. um, swath of guests. Like, you know, we went from sort of no, being known as these people who interview bloggers to the podcast who interviews weirdos, like bank robbers and drug dealers and performance psychologists and graffiti artists and entrepreneurs and authors and venture capitalists. I mean, that was very deliberate. Like the, you know, one of the, one of the things that we, I remember very distinctly, there was a moment, you know, Greg, you know to, to speak of Greg, like, you know, Greg's gift is seeing the future. Mm -hmm. We were sitting on my couch and we were going through, you know, various versions of the design and taglines and stuff. And if you remember, the very first tagline was candid conversations with creative entrepreneurs and insanely oh. interesting people. And Greg said the insanely interesting people part is the most important piece of that. And I said, why? He said, because if you want to have a presidential candidate in 2016, that needs to be there. It can't just be a podcast for entrepreneurs. He was thinking that far ahead. Um, and, and the reality is we've been basically able to get a lot of people that we would have never gotten under the other umbrella. And so you know, when, when my editor at Penguin came in, she said, you know, I don't think you're done with this idea. And it's a really big idea because mm -hmm. you know, if, if we look at sort of you know, how do you define unmistakable, and, and the idea of unmistakable is that you've created something so distinctive that nobody else could have done it but you and it's immediately recognized as something that you did and of course the, the example that always comes to the top of mind immediately is is mars dorian um who if you look at the chapter illustrations in the book um he's the one who did them but he and you know i have to credit him for the idea because he's the one who told me he said i want to create things that are so unique that he said you don't even have to put your name on it he said i want people to look at my work and know that i i was the one who did it and so I, I thought, wait a minute, that's, you know, like if you could apply that across other art forms and, you know, other areas of business, like that's really powerful because it makes the entire concept of competition irrelevant. Uh, like, so you, you have no competition because if you're the only person who does what you do in the way that you do it, people don't price shop, they don't compare. So, you know, when we, when we work with Mars, there's no negotiations, there's no shopping and we're not looking for other artists. We send him an email, like, how much is it going to cost? He sends us a quote and we're like, okay, cool. That's... You know, that's kind of the way our, our process has worked. You know, unfortunately, like he hasn't gouged us, but who knows after this book comes out. Yeah. So I'm actually going to have you read a passage okay. from the book here because it's exactly in line with what you've just been talking about. Okay. So when you're truly unmistakable, the competition becomes completely irrelevant. You're not the best option. You're the only option. When you're the only option, people don't price shop, compare, or wait for what you're selling to go on sale. If you're the only option, people will wait in line to buy your product or work with you regardless of what it costs or in some cases, regardless of what you're selling. Exactly. So earlier I asked why you wrote the book. Yeah. But your answer was kind of why in terms of business. Okay, sure. I want to know why. Why personally. Up here. Yeah. You know, and here, why you wrote the book. What is it inside of you that you had to get out? So I'll, I'll tell you what it is. You know, in one, way, in one way, I guess you could say the book is an epic rant on things that you know, bothered me on the internet. Um, and I won't tell you what I jokingly say the other I know, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, seeing as the fact that my editor is probably listening to this. Uh, so, 
the thing is that one of the things, you know, when I looked at the internet, when you have done so many interviews, you're exposed to like such a wide variety of creative projects and ideas and insights. And I kept seeing a pattern that drove me just to, to the point of madness. I would see somebody do something really successful, and then I would see a bunch of people try to replicate that thing and fail, like not even come close and you know, create things that were basically a pale imitation. You know, it's like the, the life coaching client who goes to the life coach to discover that their calling in life is to become a life coach, which is just <laughs> ridiculous. Um, and, and that's just one example. That's the one I harp on the most because it's probably my favorite one. But um, there are others. You know, if you look at Humans of New York, for example, right. do a search for Humans of on Facebook, and you'll find a Humans of project for every other city. Um, you know, Christian Lander created this blog called Stuff White People Like, and right after that, there's like a ton of copycats, right? Sure. I only and, and the thing, the other other reason I think this is so deeply personal to me is that's how my whole story began, is with attempting to replicate something that I saw work. Um, you know, cool. I started this website, which we didn't talk about. It was called 100 Reasons You Should Hire Me, and it was a failure because I couldn't come up with 100 reasons why anybody should hire me. <laughs> well. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. <laughs> you touch on this in the book, though. I mean, all great work starts off initially as imitation. I mean, sure. Austin Kleon, yeah. Steal Like an Artist. You have your inspiration. Sure. You have the people you admire. You have your heroes. You look to them for some basic guidance. Right. And at some point, it's your choice whether to copy them, to follow along, or to go off on your own, still using their skill and their creativity yeah. as inspiration. So yeah, I mean, like AJ Leon has had a, a profound influence on everything I've done, but you know, our work doesn't look like his. True. Um, so I, I think that we have to really understand there's a distinction between guidance and gospel, and the problem is that we treat the word of authority figures more like gospel than guidance, um, and that to me is is really what's so detrimental. Uh, you know, because the truth is, like you know, like I may say something, it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. I don't agree with everything everybody says on the unmistakable creative. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of guests. I'm like, okay, I don't agree with that, but. Uh, you know, so the the other thing that you you see is especially because it comes from authority figures. So, for example, you know, somebody will go out and say everybody should start a podcast. I'm like, no, that's not really true. Uh, you know, there are people who shouldn't start podcasts because they have other talents that are meant to be expressed in different ways. And by doing something like starting a podcast, they're denying the one thing that could make them unmistakable or does make them unmistakable and adding you know more noise. Uh, to the world, and so problem, the problem is th- that the people who say these things have big platforms, big audiences, and you know, so-called authority. And I, I think it's it's actually very dangerous and detrimental to creative work to treat everything they say as the word of God, which a lot of people do. Okay, you talk about this quite a bit in the book. How do you find your calling? I mean, I, I think finding a calling is a lot really about indulging curiosity more than anything, right? You know, you. The thing that happens, I think, as, as we get older, if you if you look at life, right, you are constantly taught to choose from options that are put in front of you. And as you get older, those options become narrower and narrower. Uh, you know, like if you're in college. You can make them narrower. Yeah. Narrower. I mean, the thing is that nobody tells you you don't have to choose from those options. Right. And that's the thing that I think is, is really um, important is to realize that, wait a minute, there's a whole other set of options that nobody has put in front of me that might actually be better than the ones that people have put in front of me. And, you know, so I think that's a big part of it, uh, yeah, and, and exploration, curiosity. I think the other, other thing is, I mean, if you look at what we do and the way we work at Unmistakable Creative, like, there's a tremendous amount of experimentation that goes into everything that we do. You know, by the time you see something that we've done, it's probably been through 100 iterations, you know? I, Catherine's in the room. She can attest to this, <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, like, luckily she nails it pretty much the first or second time, but she's also been victim to my madness of... Redo this. Yeah, yeah. So you know, the, and the thing is that it's madness. Yeah, everybody, everybody who works with us, we kind of have to tell them, like, where you're going to hate the process, but you'll love the result. And again, I can, you know, blame Greg for that because he taught me to work that way. Uh, 
I mean, we just, you know, and Mar Mars has, has dealt with us on this as well. Like, we push him to his limits. Like, we have pushed him to a breaking point. I remember doing it. And I was like, but then you saw the product. You saw the byproduct of what, you know, that work was. Um, so I, I think part of it is having the guts to do a lot of experimentation. And, you know, I, I, the thing is the, the cost of our mistakes, thanks to Derek, are not too high. You know, he makes sure that we don't make very expensive mistakes, but the thing is that we're willing to make mistakes. Like, we're willing to make public mistakes and get feedback. So, you know, we have an, a perfect example is how we plan the instigator experience. I didn't start out by, you know, saying, okay, we're planning a $1,300 conference and I booked the venue and I've paid for the venue. That would have been stupid because I didn't know anybody was coming. I mean, you know, we, if there's anything we learned from, you know, the failure of the second one, it's, you know, how to deal with stuff like this. But, um, you know, we started with a landing page that was as basic as it could get. It was like just a bunch of inspirational psychobabble with enter your email here. And, you know, by the time we put tickets on sale, there were 600 people on the list and we needed 60 of them. And it was sold out in two weeks. On the flip side of that, you know, the second time around, we thought we were going to do well and we didn't. We had a bigger list um, and we were, you know, sitting around negotiating with the venue. We put in a clause saying, hey, if this thing, you know, we, we need a, a refund clause in there. And this time we've learned, you know, to just put that into the contract. And if there's anything we've learned, it's never to sign any contract where we have any downside in the situation. Okay. So let's come back to the book here. If you would, walk me through the chapters, walk me through the yeah. content. Okay. What's inside? What's inside? So, you know, obviously we've talked about surfing as, as a metaphor for right. business, life, and creativity. So, you know, the introduction is kind of, you know, how I came to this conclusion and, and where the idea of unmistakable came from. So, um, you know, people have downloaded the introduction for free. But uh, so, you know, when you, when you get to the water, uh, the first thing that you do after you put on your wetsuit is you paddle out. Um, into the water and, and you paddle out to a certain point because waves break on shore, like waves break, you know, a couple yards offshore and then they come to shore and that's how you ride them. Like if you've ever seen the ocean, you'll see surfers actually ride parallel and, you know, waves don't just come straight, they're all parallel. And so you're going from, you know, where you're starting to, to where you're at, so you have to paddle out to the takeoff point. So in the process of the paddle out, there are a lot of things, you know, that, that happen. I mean, there's going to be sometimes obstacles in your way like rocks. There's, you know, sometimes other surfers yelling at you. Uh, you know, you're trying to dodge things. I mean, usually it's, it's one of the smoother parts of, you know, the journey. But the thing is that a lot of people, you know, kind of sit there with their feet stuck in the sand because it, it can be paralyzing to do something that you've never done before or go out. And so it, it's a perfect sort of analogy for what it's like to get in the water. You've just described entrepreneurship. Yeah, more or less. You that's, have. I mean. Yeah, that, that's, and that, that really, you know, that, that's the idea is, is that, you know, there's no... There's no amount of watching and reading and all of this stuff that's going to give you the same experience as actually being in the environment, right? Like, you can watch 100 surf videos, and I can promise you if you get in the water with me, you're going to fall, and you're not going to stand up because it's a totally different experience. Like, all these things that are not there. So, you know, basically, surfers start with what's known as a land lesson, right? You, if you're with a surf instructor, he'll simulate the experience of standing up on a surfboard, and you'll say, okay, he's like, yeah, just push yourself up. Of course, what he doesn't tell you is, by the way, water and, you know, land and moving water are two entirely different experiences. Right. So, basically, the land lesson is completely useless when, the t when you get into the water. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a lot of falling. It's a lot of getting yelled at by other people who know what they're doing, and you know, and eventually you figure it out. Okay. So you've got the uh, the paddle out. So the paddle out, and then that takes you into the lineup, right? So the okay. lineup is basically you know what we refer to all the other people in the water, uh, all the other surfers as the lineup. And in any lineup, there's always going to be people who have more talent and more skill than you do. It's just a given, especially if you're at a surf spot that is popular. 
um, which means you just have to bring it. And if you do things like hesitate on waves, if you do things like cut people off, like if you make mistakes, you lose the respect of the lineup really fast. You know, like for example, uh, just a few weeks ago, um, I was at this place in San Clemente where I surfed. I mean, you and I have been down there where you photographed in a place called Trestles, and we saw a guy call another guy off a wave and just eat shit after he called the other guy off. That kind of thing basically causes you to lose a lot of respect. It's like you can't call somebody off a wave and then fall. Um, it's just no, you know, like so. So the lineup basically is a metaphor for competition because the thing is, you know, when we look at the world that we live in today, the sheer volume of noise that we're dealing with, the sheer volume of competition that we're dealing with is at a level that's unlike anything we've ever seen because what's happened is that technology has democratized our ability to create and to share ideas and tell stories, but in that process, it has also raised the bar uh, significantly in terms of what's expected because there's so many people competing for your attention. Right, which goes into the topic of longevity, which is yeah. huge in here. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to have you read that part right there. Okay. It goes on to the next page. Anyone can put a piece of art on Instagram for a week. Anyone can write a blog for 90 days, which is the time frame when most people quit. Anyone can record 10 episodes of a podcast. With longevity, you start to build and earn the trust of an audience. How does that compare? So what aspect of that relates to the lineup? So the thing is that you know, when you first enter a lineup and you're unrecognized in the lineup, you're not, you know, welcome. Like if you look at a place like the Bonsai Pipeline in Hawaii, there's a pecking order. You and I will never even be allowed in the water there. Like if I showed up there with a surfboard, I'd get a lot of dirty looks. Um, like you have to be vetted by the people in the lineup. And the thing is that if you start showing up regularly at the place that you surf, you start to earn the respect of the lineup because like, okay, wait a minute, you're not just here for today. So, you know, for example, I've surfed at Trestles for the better part of four years now. I mean, most of those people in the water are my friends. I see them every day, like they've become friends. But the funny thing is I remember when, you know, I started noticing some of these guys, I would hear them yell at people and think, what a bastard. And now they're friends of mine. And I'm like, now I know why they yell at those people because those people are idiots sometimes. And, and, you know, everybody starts out not knowing what they're doing, but longevity is such a critical component. You know, I, I think the other thing I said about longevity was, you know, something that came from Sam Altman, who was the president of Y Combinator. He t tells startup founders that, you know, you're, Greatest competitive, greatest competitive advantage is a long-term view because so few people have one. But he defined a long-term view as ten years. Then sure. that's you know for most of us that that seems unfathomable because you know we think one year is a long time, which it's not at all. Right. If you actually start to tease apart and, and really you know look at the careers of people who've done things of great significance. Sure, sure. Part three, the, the drop. drop. That has been one of the most interesting chapters because every single person who is in some sort of a transition who has read this book has sent me a note saying, this is the chapter that I feel that I can relate to most. So basically what the drop is a metaphor for, so when you're surfing, um, you basically paddle for a wave. And if you, you know, like for anybody listening, uh, I would recommend that you actually go watch a YouTube video to see what I'm talking about because it'll make a lot more sense. Because uh, it's it's a bit hard to describe you know visually, but what happens is you know you see a wave coming and you start paddling for a wave, and so between paddling and pushing up on the wave and actually standing up, there's one moment which is called the drop, and that's basically what gives you the speed to get into the wave because you drop your paddling parallel, so that the wave carries you, and you stand up. But the thing is, the drop is all about one thing, so it, it's all about commitment. If you actually screw it up. You'll either fall, you'll get tossed. It, it's actually worse to hesitate 
than it is to totally go for it and eat shit because you're much more likely to get hurt when you hesitate. Uh, I, I know because I've, I've seen it happen. I've, I've, it's happened to me at times when I'm like, okay, that was sketchy. I should have just gone, gone for, for it. it. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the more challenging the wave is, the steeper the drop is. So at, on certain waves, the drop literally feels as if you're like just making a vertical drop on a surfboard. So what's the analogy to the business world, so, the entrepreneur world? I think the analogy there is really about commitment, right? Because often when we try to make a change, our efforts in a lot of cases are half-assed. Or what you often see, you know, this is something I've seen over and over again, is somebody will, will try something for a very short period of time and then, then they will decide and declare that it's a failure. And it's like, wait a minute, you just gave it like, you know, two months. How can you possibly say this is a failure? So it's, it's really all about commitment. That's what the whole idea of the drop is. Why do you think people hesitate? Not necessarily when they're uh, at the drop well, in the water, but why do they hesitate with in life, in business? Because, because everything you're dealing with is an unknown, but that's, that's also what makes it so thrilling, right? Like, every wave is different. If, if surfing was the same every time you went out, it wouldn't be that much fun. That's probably what makes it so addictive, is that the novelty never wears off. You know, seven years later, what, or now, it'll, at the end of this year, it'll be eight, and I can tell you, every time we go out, we're like, wow, this could be better than the next time. It could be worse than the next time. I mean, there are days when you're just like, why the hell did we make the drive to come here? Uh, but the novelty never wears off. And you know, I, I think a lot of people, when it comes to entrepreneurial endeavors or, or anything that they're starting, there's a tremendous fear of the unknown because you know, we spend our lives being conditioned into seeking out certainty. And, you know, I mean, the reality is that cert what you start to figure out at a certain point is that certainty is really an illusion. There is no certainty. I love this quote. It's from Laird Hamilton. I'm going to have you read it. Okay. Though you're not, though you're not so, Laird. Okay. Fear is an unbelievable motivator, but it also makes people freeze in their tracks. Once you understand it, fear becomes something you can tap into. Fear comes from understanding that you can die. It usually makes me make really good decisions and gives me power. Yeah. And Laird makes much more important decisions than I do, seeing as to the fact the consequences of his screw-ups are death. Literally. Next chapter is... Awkward pause. Sorry. <laughs> what is the next chapter? Stream? The ride. The ride. So, Tell me about the ride. So the ride, basically, I mean, once you're standing up on a board, that's really, I mean, that's where surfing actually happens. And, and the interesting thing about being in the water is you can be in the water for three hours. You'll be spending two minutes of it actually surfing, like actually riding waves. Um, because, you know, the, the rides are really short. That's why it's so hard to get good at it. You know, most people who are really good surfers have been doing it almost their entire lives. And even the bulk of those people don't have the skill to become pros. Um, but the ride really, I think, in my mind, was a metaphor for mastery of any sort of craft uh, because it, it's all about, you know, the ride is where you go from being, you know, entirely dependent on people who have guided you and mentored you and, and people that you have learned from to a combination of things. One, uh, you know, an extreme demonstration of skill combined with style. Um, it's where basically, you know, I, I guess the metaphor I use is you graduate from that stupid foam soft top board to a real surfboard. And when you get off that soft top board, you'll find at first it's incredibly difficult. But the thing is that you also eventually realize, wait a minute, the world just opened up to me. It's like going from driving a Hummer to suddenly having a Ferrari um, is really kind of the, the analogy when you go from one of those big boards to a shorter board. And, and you know, it basically amplifies the entire experience of riding a wave. And so, you know, you, you look at what truly goes into mastery. It's very similar to those people who become, you know, masterful surfers. Um, thousands of hours of water time, um, much of it actually not riding waves, but getting used to being in the water. Uh, 
uh, you know, because like getting used to the environment itself is, is, you know, I always say it's like adjusting to life in a new city. But there are roadblocks or yep. to use the water analogy, the impact zone. Well, so the impact zone, you know, I mean, that would be the next chapter. So we can talk about that. So mm -hmm. basically there is a section, if you, if you watch surfers, you'll see this. I mean, just do a search for like a bonsai pipeline video on YouTube. There's a section known as the impact zone where you're basically taking wave after wave after wave on the head because waves come in sets. And sometimes you don't get to the takeoff point before the set starts. So you're kind of stuck. Every time you lift your head up, there's another wave coming and you're just like, you know, you just get beat down one after another. And there's no way to avoid that. Like the only way to avoid it is not to surf. Um, and you know, each time you're in it, it gets a little less heavy and a little, it doesn't shake you as much, but there are still plenty of days. Like I, I was surfing in El Salvador and you know, I, I looked off in the horizon. And I'm like, oh shit, like this is not gonna be good. And like, and I'm, you know, and the sun is going down and I'm like, I'm probably one of three guys in the water and I'm the least skilled surfer in the water. And you just, you kind of know it's going to be heavy. You're like, okay, I'm going to, you probably be held underwater for a while. Um, I'm going to come up for air. And the moment I come up from air for air, there's going to be another like 10 foot bomb that I'm going to take on the head and I'm going to be underwater again for a little while. And you're basically just like gasping for breath. I mean, I, th I think the, the thing you, you try to remember is not to panic, and, and that's hard because it's, it's really scary, especially because those waves are big and they're powerful. And so I, I think, you know, I looked at the impact zone as sort of a metaphor for going through very dark and difficult times. You know, I, I think that to me was, it just described it because you mm -hmm. literally feel like it's never going to end. But the thing is that, like I said, waves come in sets. So at some point, it all kind of calms down and you make your way back to the takeoff point. And if you're smart, you never paddle out while a set's coming in because that's just stupid. So usually we'll just stand on shore and we're like, okay, that's gonna hopefully, and sometimes you'll time it thinking you're gonna get out there without you know, um, getting just wrecked. And right as you paddle out, another set starts. And you're just like, okay, great. So, so it seems like the way to survive the impact zone is grit. Well, I mean, the way to survive or, the or impact zone is determination. grit and determination and also the experience of being in it. You know, like the thing is, it shakes you less every single time because you've been, it, it's, it's about basically the thing that once used to be incredibly uncomfortable eventually becomes comfortable. Like I can surf a four to five foot day and take a few waves in the head. I'm like, all right, cool. I can hack this. I know I'm not going to die or drown. Whereas, you know, you put me in 10 foot surf. I've only experienced that one or two times. And every time I was just like, okay, this is too big. It's, it's not within my skill level. So I think what really prepares you for it is the experience of being in it. There's nothing, you know, I think I talked to somebody recently. I said, it's a bit, you know, you take very emotionally charged experiences. So for example, let's like look at something like the death of a parent, right? I can read every book on losing a parent imaginable, but I'm never gonna have the understanding of it that somebody who's actually lost a parent has. Okay. Um, We've purposefully been using a lot of surf analogies. Yeah. But how does all this apply to entrepreneurs, yeah. artists, creative, creatives? How can they take these analogies, this storyline, and apply it to their life and become unmistakable? unmistakable? Okay. So how they become unmistakable? That that's a that's a lengthy conversation, but we'll um, we'll I'll do do my best. Okay. I mean, every one of these things represents a phase of the creative process. Right. You know, they're they're metaphors for a certain phase. Like you know. You start knowing nothing. Um, you start having to deal with competition. Um, it takes an incredible amount of commitment and resilience to see a creative project to you know whatever you whatever however you define success, regardless of what that is. It's going to take you know time and longevity and commitment. Uh, you know if you're if you're committed to it, it's going to require commitment to mastery. And inevitably, there are going to be impact zones like where you're going to be tested. 
you know, um, it, those moments I think are the ultimate test of how bad you really want to, uh, how bad do you really want this thing? Like, are you willing to persist through this horrible time? You know, I mean, when, you know, we, we called 2014 my impact zone and Greg Hartle gave me three options. You know, I remember very distinctly, he called me, it was a couple days before Thanksgiving. He said, all right, here's the deal. And he's like, everything is shit right now, more or less, which it was. He said, you can shut the whole thing down and we can talk about it, how to do that if you want. He said, we can cash it out, pay out your money and you can quit. He said, you can go get a job and you can do it on the side. Or he said, you can do option number three, which is go all in. And when I said, well, what if I gave it a certain timeline? And he said, if you give it a certain timeline, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I, I, I thought that was really interesting because a lot of people disagreed with that advice. But Brian gave me very good advice. He said, tell your parents about the timeline. He said, that'll appease them. Um, so I told my parents about the timeline, not having any intention of quitting, um, and just persisted. So I mean, I think really it's the impact zone is a test of how bad you want this thing you say you want. Perfect. We are going to shift gears completely. Cool. Do a few rapid fire questions, grab some questions from the audience. Okay. And uh, then drink some bourbon. You can drink some bourbon. I have to go give a talk. I'll drink oh. bourbon after that. All right. You have to drive me to the talk. How are you going to drink bourbon? I should be concerned, shouldn't I? No. <laughs> no, no, you shouldn't be. Um, do you have any heroes? I mean, are there one or two people, not necessarily mentors, but people outside your life that you really look up to? God, that's a hard question. I don't. I mean, it could be an author. It could be. Yeah, I mean, somebody asked me what one of my favorite books was. I was like, I looked. I had to look at my bookshelf. I'm like, I can't even. Oh, that's start. actually uh, this question right here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Great. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I like. I think I've borrowed ideas and insights from so many people. I mean, not just people I've interviewed, but like I'm reading this Walt Disney biography right now. Um, I mean, the thing is, I've looked at so many people. Like I've read stuff about Steve Jobs, like, and I've borrowed certain elements because I don't think, like, you know, I think we have this idea in our mind of change the world, and the connotation is Mother Teresa, Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, and I'm like, yeah, but you know, I, I said in the book, and like by definition, when you create something that didn't exist before, you change the world. Right. Uh, so you know, I so mean, be your own hero. Yeah, I guess maybe is a lesson. Okay, very good. Um, actually, let's go to the book question. Not yeah. so. Not what is your favorite book? Because that would be hard. That's silly. Yeah. But uh, what three books do you think have had the most impact on your life? The War of Art absolutely has had a profound impact. And who wrote that? Uh, by Stephen Pressfield. Mm -hmm. um, A.J. Leon's Life and Times of Remarkable Misfit, which I don't know if you could call it a book, but um, is a collection of essays that was supposed to be a book, but he returned the advance to his publisher and self-published it. Um, and that ended up being, that was one of those things that just fundamentally shifted a lot of things for me. Um, I'm trying to think of the third one. Believe it or not, it will be a cheesy self-improvement book, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acor. Uh, because why I like that book, and the funny thing is I, I shouldn't even call it a cheesy self-improvement book because Sean Acor is a happiness researcher whose work is based on actual science, not, you know, motivational psychobabble. Um, like he's done research in labs and all of the things that I've applied to my life that I learned from that book have actually made tangible differences, like measurable differences that I can, I can literally tie things that I learned from that book to income that I've made. So, What's the most recent thing you've changed your mind about? Oof. Something that you've believed for a long time and you just realized, shit, that's not true. I think that we've, 
you know, and you know, in some ways, I, maybe I'm guilty of perpetuating is that we have perpetuated this mantra that everybody should follow this unconventional path and do their own thing. And maybe that's not true. Maybe some people are perfectly content and happy, um, you know, with the, their lives the way they are. I think that the problem with what the internet has done, you know, when you see stories like, you know, in, in many cases, even the ones that I've, I've been responsible for putting out into the world. Um, is they take people who feel completely satisfied with their life and make them feel dissatisfied, um, you know. And maybe that's not a bad thing, but maybe it, maybe it is. You know, in some cases, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Some, you know, and I've seen people make bad decisions because of that. Interesting, interesting. If you could send a message back in time to the Srini of ten years ago, mm. what would that message be? Don't worry so much more than anything else. I think we all want to send that message back to ourselves. Yeah, I mean, well, the funny thing is I actually wrote, I have something written titled uh, A Letter to My 18-Year-Old Self uh, somewhere on Medium. Like, You're 28? No. Oh, okay. Well, I, well yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my 20-year-old self, God, what was I yeah. like when I was 20? God, I mean. Confused. Confused, stressed out, worried. Um, so was 20-year-old you know, Srini if I, know if about I could, If I could go and tell my 20-year-old self something I would say, don't be so damn rigid about your plans. That was the biggest thing that I think I wish I would have done differently because I was so hell-bent on things being a certain way and none of it went according to plan anyways. So, you know, that, that's, you know I, I would say, say that. I think I was in a hurry to reach a certain point and I think I missed a lot of things along the way because of that. I think a lot of people do. Yeah. I think a lot of people are in a hurry to reach some level of achievement. For sure. And uh, a very, without even knowing why they want to reach that level of achievement. It's yeah. just something to do. For sure. Um, aside from your own podcast, who or what are you listening to on a regular basis? So um, I don't know that there's anything I listen to on a regular basis, but there's stuff that I, I check and do on an occasional basis. Um, there's a podcast by a guy named Sam Jones, who's a celebrity photographer. Mm -hmm. He runs a show called Off Camera. And I, I really like the show because he brings in very interesting people. Like, you know, he's had actors, he's had photographers. I mean, anybody who can get Matt Damon, Cindy Crawford, and Laird Hamilton on his podcast. Um, so the Sam Jones one, I mean, just because of the sheer diversity of people that he brings on, um, I'm trying to think of who else I've listened to recently. I mean, I started picking up the, the Malcolm Gladwell revisionist it's history. Amazing. That is incredible, I, I have to say. Excellent. Yeah. We're going to go to the audience. Raise your hand if you have a question you'd like to ask Srini. I will have to repeat it just because the mic's not going to pick it up. Uh, man with the cell phone. Yeah, yes. Hey. No. <laughs> uh, I'd like to ask uh, a little bit about your startup experience and sort of the finances around that. And yeah. So, okay. So let me repeat that real quick. Uh, so the question is about your startup experience and the finances behind it. So startup in terms of building Unmistakable? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, this isn't the greatest question for me. There's a reason that I'm not in charge of the finances anymore uh, because I nearly ran the company in the ground in 2014. Um, that's why, you know, I, I met uh, coincidentally, like through the, the publication of Art of Being Unmistakable, that's another thing that's actually really significant that we never got to, is that I met Brian because of that book. He uh, is, he's the CEO of our company and um, he emailed me out of the blue. He said, hey, I, I saw your Glenn Beck interview, do you want to meet up on Surf? Which, he, I mean, he was smart enough to know that I would never say no to that. 
And so, you know, we got to surfing together and Brian had built a skateboard company out of his parents' garage when he was in high school and he had it in 27 stores in two years. So he knew a thing or two about running a business and his family, you know, all, his parents were both entrepreneurs. Um, I mean, really, it's, there's two things I think that I've learned from both Brian and Greg. One is just the sheer importance of keeping track of things. Um, most people, I think, see that as a necessary evil, but um, it, it's been kind of said, and I, you know, I can't take credit for this. I, I don't remember where I heard it, but measurement alone improves performance. And I know this because I saw what happened you know, when Greg got me into measuring. We went from six hundred to $120,000 in six months in the bank. Like, it was kind of nuts to see that. I mean, a good amount of it was for our event, but it's still, you, know, you look at it, you're like, okay, we made massive strides because of that. Uh, so that is that is probably the biggest thing I would say is measurement uh, and then keeping costs down. You know, I mean, we've intentionally a lot of us not taken salaries. Uh, you know, like uh, you know, some of our team. You know, like Derek still has another job. Brian still has another job. I'm the one who still. And you know, we there was a moment I think in 2014 where Greg said, "If you want, you can take out more," and I didn't. I actually left in half of what I should have taken out, um, and that honestly saved us from going out of business. So. You know, I'm not the best person to ask about finances. The one thing I know is that I shouldn't manage money. Um, and, and you should keep track of all of it. That's what I would say. Other questions? Sure. Have you surfed the Oregon coast yet? And if not, when? No, Bent's a uh, friend of Matt's has tried to convince me multiple times. And he's like, yeah, he's like, you'll need a longboard. I'm like, so, and a really big, thick wetsuit. Because I've heard it's bone chilling. So not yet, but maybe in the next couple of months. My guess is it probably is only good in the winter, unfortunately. Short sands. <laughs> All right, good to know. Oswald West? Yeah. Yeah. Go. Great beach. Good to know. Other questions? <clears throat> Other questions? Mark Grimes, that's a great question you have there. Right, it was, wasn't it? Um, what book do you most give other people? What book do you most give other people? Or do you? I don't, it's weird. I haven't gifted a lot of books that... that uh, so I don't have an answer. I, I probably should, seeing as the fact that I'm an author, and I should shouldn't be my own book because that's obnoxious. The AJ Lane yeah, actually, well, I gifted that book to you. <laughs> I, I usually send. Yeah, actually, come to think of it, if anybody asks me for something inspiring to read, I always send them to the Life and Times of Remarkable Misfit. I'm going to second that. It's a fantastic read. It's, it really is. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Ma'am. Um, my question is, how do you get people to be on your show? Okay. Question is, how do people get onto the unmistakable creative? So there's there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, the, the weird thing is, people always think that there's some sort of formula to it, and if there was some formula to it, it wouldn't be unmistakable, is what I always say. Because um, I don't want you to, be, I don't want anybody to be able to replicate it. Nobody can because it's all based on my morbid curiosity. So I. Um, you know, I take recommendations from people, like people will write in stuff, uh, but more than anything, I think it comes down to, am I intrigued by this person? So that, like, first it starts with whether I want to have them. And then, of course, uh, at this point, it's easier to get people because we've had so many. Like, once we mention who our roster is, almost everybody's like, yeah, I'll do this. And then they go and look at the iTunes reviews, like, okay, this won't be a complete waste of time. Um, you know, we end up we end up getting a lot of very, like, powerful conversations out of people. It, like, to me, as an interviewer, I think you know my job is to shine a light on them and make them look their absolute best. And so, because of that, like we've been able to take our interviews and translate them into animated shorts and, and do all sorts of stuff that you could never do with a podcast. Uh, so, it, you know, curiosity is one. People will write in occasionally and and you know recommend guests. Some people will pitch themselves, and sometimes when they pitch themselves, they're good. Sometimes, you know, they're bad. Um, I will cut interviews in the middle of them if they think they suck. 
Um, I will make people do multiple takes, which Rima can attest to, since I made her do six takes before we got it right. Um, but it turned out phenomenal, so that's, you know, I, I'm okay with that. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's, that's really the answer. So it's mixed way. It's really mixed. There's no sort of set thing. You know, people always ask, what does it take? Like, is there a criteria? I was like, I wish I could give you a step-by-step -step criteria. My answer is no. I mean, I think that there's two things. Am I curious and will this person be able to teach the audience something valuable? Um, can we entertain and educate at the same time? If we can accomplish one but not the other, then it's almost always a no. I love your stuff. I love your podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Sir? There's some uninteresting people that sound very interesting through their stories, and there's some really interesting people that are, don't sound very interesting. Yeah. I'm sure you've had both sides of that coin. So what allows people to project themselves in a light that makes them interesting? Well, you know, it's funny because you can take one person and um, depending on who the interviewer is, they may sound uninteresting on one podcast and they may sound brilliant on another. Uh, so I, I think part of it is, I think a big part of it is asking them questions that they don't typically get asked. You know, I mean, there's a reason that we start with, you know, questions about people's childhoods and, and the kinds of things that most people won't ask them about. And, and you know, we've even gotten more intentional about starting with more unusual questions because we're like, okay, you know what, it's taking too long to get to the point of flow with them. And so Brian actually had the foresight to see this. He's like, here's a list of questions, start with one of these. And he's like, ask people, and you know, we had Sally Hogstead recently, and we said, what birth order were you and what impact did that have on the choices you've made with your life? Weird question to start a conversation with, but that's not what they're expecting. Um, or, you know, my friend Erica Learmark, last week we had her, and you know, I, I know her well, and I was like, so your dad has had this profound impact on your life what's been the most valuable thing that you learned from your father? I stole that from the guy who Tim Ferriss interviewed, by the way, Cal Fussman, because he asked Gorbachev that, and I was like, great question. I'm going to absolutely ask that. Have you interviewed James Altucher? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have a picture of James on my phone if you want. We're friends on Facebook. Oh, are you? And we talk back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, we've had James. What about Leonard Kim? No. Have you heard of Leonard Kim? Uh-uh. He's a personal brand strategist. Okay. okay. Yes, sir. How do you measure the success of your show and how those yardsticks changed over the years? Okay, that's a, that's a fair question. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing is, like, uh, what we figured out at the beginning of this year was that there was one metric that mattered above all of them. And because we knew we had a book coming out, we're like, okay, what drives book sales? Email subscribers. That's it. Every other metric didn't really matter that much because... Um, I don't remember, it might have also been from the Startup School podcast series. They, one of the guys who, so what the Startup School podcast series is, the Y Combinator president basically, they teach a class at Stanford that is an entrepreneurship class in the computer science department. And they bring in founders from every Y Combinator portfolio startup to come and talk about a different subject area. Um, you know, they cover marketing, they cover sales, they cover, you know, they cover operations. I mean, like I had our entire team go through that twice and it made a fundamental, like we changed a lot of the way we operate. Um, you know, I mean, the major metrics we look at, of course, are, are revenue, you know, because we want to make sure that we're bringing in money and not losing money. And then, uh, but being, you know, with a book launch coming, email was the number one thing. So it was kind of like, is that number bigger every single week? That was it. You know, so much so that I, every, at the end of every week, I print it out and I tape it to the wall mm -hmm. as a constant reminder because uh, I read about that in a book called The Four Disciplines of Execution, where they're like, if your metrics are visible and right in front of you, you're much more likely to pay attention to them. And I also had Derek set up our Slack channel so that every time somebody subscribes to a, an, the, our email, we kind of see what is going on. So we have like a constant finger on the pulse of the most important metric. Um, 
yeah, I mean, like I'm at the point now where you know I was just texting Brian last night, and this happens when I read crazy books. I read Accidental Billionaires. I was like, we need more growth. I'm like, figure out how to make that happen. All right, one more question, Derek. Derek Wyatt. All right. Um, seeing that this is a part of your life where you're riding a pretty good high, you've got your first self-published book. Are you looking forward to the next thing? Are you trying to enjoy the moment? Like, what's next for Unmistakable You, and or are you just trying to get through today? Um, well, first, yeah, I'm trying to get through today, uh, but I'm looking forward to, you know, Matt driving me drunk to the next place, so that should be interesting. <laughs> there is uh, rum out there. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting question because I, I think that, you know, part of what I experienced in 2014 was going from an extreme high to an extreme low, so I'm wary of extreme highs at this point. And the thing is that, actually, this is a, a perfect time to echo the momentum window sentiment that, you know, Greg has taught me is that you know, we, I would say, are in a momentum window right now. And you know, he had told me, he said, if you play your cards right, you'll make a quantum leap where you'll never be back down at the same level again. The part that maybe he left out, but I figured out, was that it doesn't matter. It's not only what you do in the momentum window, it's what you do right after that matters just as much, if not more. Um, so you know, people are like, what are you going to do Tuesday morning when the book comes out? Like, I'm going to write 1,000 words. That's what I do every day. I mean, we'll have dinner, and Brian will come over, and we'll drink, but you know. I will wake up and I will write a thousand words. It'll be business as usual as far as I'm concerned. You know, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, you should take a moment to celebrate. But I, you know, I think about this thing that um, Stephen Pressfield talks about this in his book, Do the Work. And you know, if, if you listen to the audio version, that's another book that, that yeah. actually had a profound impact, especially the audio version. He says, you know, he finally, after 17 years of trying, finished something. And he went over to this guy, Paul Rink's house, and Paul said, great, now start the next one. And Conveniently, we have a next book to start. <laughs> so, you know, the outline is due in October. Perfect. Serini, I have two final questions well, for here you. Here comes the one that, yeah, All I right. was waiting for. Oh, really? What do you yeah, think well, I, was, I've been, I don't have an answer off What's the top of What's your favorite mind. color? Yeah. No, um, actually, um, where do you expect to be in 20 years? Wow. I mean, are you going to be sitting in front of a screen talking into a microphone 20 years from now? It's in 2036, you know, like I, I couldn't tell you that I was going to be sitting in front of a screen talking to a microphone, you know, uh, even 10 years ago. I mean, look how far we've come. I think the, the the interesting thing that is happening is that the gap between creativity and technology is narrower than it's ever been, and we're going to get it to a point where it's pretty much non-existent. Um, I think that we will be able to do things like make the equivalent of a Hollywood feature film from our phones within the next two years, maybe five. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because I've seen some of what's possible. Like I uh, was with a friend very recently, and he showed me um, drone footage that he shot from a vacation in Costa Rica. It looked like the opening sequence to a Hollywood film, and he shot it with a drone tied to his iPad. That he probably paid fifteen hundred bucks for. Yeah. When now that and now that same drone camera is like one hundred and fifty dollars on Amazon. So no, I mean not necessarily. Like I, the thing is, like you know, if you remember we started out as running a blog, then a podcast, and then an animated series. So I mean, yeah, will we run a podcast? Probably. I don't know. In twenty years, I mean, I don't think that I will ever stop creating media. That's kind of the. If there's a through line to all of this, it's that I like making things, and I like using technology to make different things in all forms of media. Um, I never wanted to be just a podcast. Um, I, I think that that was something I, I could always look beyond that. I mean, there's probably one of my favorite things that I saw uh, or read recently was in this Walt Disney biography that I'm reading, and it's really big and long, so I haven't read it as, as thoroughly as I'd like to. I'm going like five pages a day. But they said, you know, when Walt Disney um, started, 
in the earliest days, everything was about exceeding the limitations of the medium. And that's what I wanted to do with podcasting. So, you know, you see things that are coming like virtual reality, uh, augmented reality, all of this stuff. It, I think we were, we're really kind of in the infancy, you know, it, we're, we're at the very beginning of another really big wave. And, um, you know, Kevin Kelly and I just talked about this and he said, you know, this is going to, the industrial revolution is going to pale in comparison to the next 50 years. I would agree. Final question. How are you unmistakable? Yeah, so I've thought about this because I knew you were going to ask this. Uh, and I, I think that what it really is is perspective, right? Is that often aging gives us a perspective that we would never get any other way, and we can't get any other way. Um, so you add that plus a combination of life experiences, the exposure to hundreds, if not thousands, of people's ideas, um, all mixed together in, in only the way that I would have thought to mix them together. And that's what I would say makes me unmistakable as perspective. I like that. And with that, we're going to wrap up the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Srini Rao. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. 
Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.